Hi, I'm Annabelle. And I'm Amy. Welcome to Escaping Purgatory, a podcast in which we rewatch Supernatural and then talk about it in the hopes that we can finally escape the show. This week we have a special guest. Uh, he reached out to us to come onto the podcast, which we're so grateful for. And he's going to talk about some of the things he's noticed in the show and sort of up to up to this point and beyond as well. So let's give it up for Michael. <laughs> okay, my name's Michael. I'm a Finnish and Swedish teacher in Finland. And I've been watching Supernatural on and off for about 13 years. Oh, that's awesome. So we... Uh, we <laughs> Because we like to quiz our guests, because we're mean. Um, we we came up with some things just so people could get to like know you a little bit more and know where you're at with Supernatural at the moment. So we sent you some questions ahead of this podcast just to let you kind of, just kind of get to know you and see how you know came about watching Supernatural and sort of favourite moments. I think that's a really good way to get to know someone. I was speaking to someone recently, and uh, they don't watch Supernatural, but they told me that the person they just started dating watches it a lot and I was like oh you need to tell me <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's their favourite season because I feel like you can tell a lot about a person <laughs> through their favourite season of Supernatural. So yeah um, Michael how did you get into Supernatural and also what's your favourite episode up to this point? Okay um, I got into the show about 13 years ago when we watched an episode in my media studies class at college we were doing the horror genre. Our teacher decided that the Ghost Faces episode would be um, a really good episode for us to watch and discuss and analyse. Seemed like the perfect show to fit into the um, Buffy and X-Files shaped hole in my life. Um, <laughs> I've had an on-off relationship with the show over the last 13 or so years. I say on and off. I think one of my friends has commented more than once on the fact that I have a love-hate relationship with the show. There are... <laughs> aspects of it that I love and aspects of it that I really hate. I think your other question was what's my favourite episode up until now? Yeah. Um, I think there were, it was almost Faith but um, Everybody loves Faith. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It it had to be In My Time of Dying. It was the first episode I watched when I got back into watching the show in 2015. I thought it was a great exploration of Dean's character and it gave him an opportunity to express his anger at John. But um, the parts that I really appreciated were Dean's relationship with death mm. in the episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, um, or the Reaper. I think here um, Tessa is a stand-in for death in this episode. But uh, the part that I really liked about it was that death wasn't evil or malicious in this episode or in the show in general. Death is just a fact of life that happens to everyone. I really appreciated that. It's something that's uncommon in the horror genre. I just wonder, because when I spoke about that episode, I'm a really big Neil Gaiman fan, and it was commented on uh, that um, Tessa is is actually based on Death from the Sandman comics. And I didn't know if you were familiar as well, and kind of saw that parallel also, because I would say that Death in in those comics is very similar. She's a bubbly goth girl. Like, <laughs> she's there to sign of ease the way, but also is very no-nonsense. And that that's really shaped my, I don't know, my whole world view, those comics, let alone sort of how I think about Supernatural. So, yeah, I just wonder about that. I read other ones. Yeah. But I'm um, not Sandman. 
I, there's a there is a show coming soon i'm very excited <laughs> for it so we could all get excited about that on netflix uh, <laughs> oh thanks for that no i really agree with you i think the episode's um awesome yeah um, it's such a good introduction to a season and it's it's a weird like tonal shift as well from season one i feel but in like a good way too yes definitely like yeah it's, it makes it just a bit more serious a bit less like buffy i guess i think they're trying to stray away from that because Buffy as Heart was kind of a sitcom, almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> so I would say the reason we have um, Michael here today with us is actually to talk about talk on Dean and, and some of these bigger themes and things. So I mean, with that being said, like, what is your favourite Dean moment? Of I mean, I, I guess up to now, or we could go the whole series, whatever you have. Up until now, I'd have to say it was the moment in two o four when Dean stakes the zombie into the coffin. What's dead should stay dead. I'm aware that you two weren't the biggest fans of that episode. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the reason I like that moment is because the zombie was a clear parallel for Dean. It was something that was brought back to life by someone who was grieving, and the zombie was hurting and damaging other people. It was The zombie was a metaphor for Dean, and when Dean staked the zombie into the coffin and said, what's dead should stay dead, it was a chilling moment. And it really showed Dean's uh, bereavement and survivor's guilt. My favourite Dean moment of the entire series would probably be the complete opposite of that. And it would have to be the um, the scene when Dean is dancing in episode 1510. The one when he's <laughs> dancing with the lamp. Yes, the lamp! <laughs> yep. There were some other ones that could have been my favourite, but I chose that one because it's um, it's very close to the end of his journey of self-acceptance and self-realisation, and it shows that he truly has become comfortable with himself and who he is rather than what other people want him to be. Um, it also shows that he's finally completely accepting his love for Cass. Oh, are, we, are we ascribing to the Cass is a lamp theory here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I would say... I don't think Annabelle's familiar, so I will, I I will not. have to fill her in. And as we go through the fine. seasons, Annabelle, you can enjoy. <laughs> you can enjoy that. <laughs> I can enjoy the the uh, descent into madness. Yeah, <laughs> yay! No, that's fine. I'm looking forward to it. I suppose. I didn't really think of a favorite Sam moment. There was one that I kind of liked, but it was more about Dean. So I <laughs> came up with two others. There was one about my favourite Rowena moment and my favourite mm-hmm. death moment, um, if they are fitting substitutes. <laughs> Go for it. I think so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, my favourite Rowena moment was when she was revealed to be the Queen of Hell. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I th- thought that was the perfect conclusion to her character arc. It um, carried her development to its natural conclusion without undermining or retconning anything. Yeah. And what I also thought was great was that it was that it didn't change her as a character either. She didn't suddenly become evil. Mm-hmm. Um, she still cared about the people that she cared about in life, um, but she was still ruthless, powerful, and commanding. I think that's the only character that they did well in the entire entire show. Yeah. yeah. The only character that got a satisfying ending. I mean, at least it was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite death moment was... Um, I think it was series six when and I think it was Dean and Cass that were trying to get Death to return Sam's soul. And they did it by performing a binding spell on Death. 
Um, <laughs> it was obvious throughout that entire scene that death had the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew it, and the boys knew it, and he was more annoyed and irked than angry. And I think his entire attitude towards humanity perfectly embodies uh, cosmic indifference. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. the universe isn't good, it isn't evil, it just doesn't care about us one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I say this again, read Sandman. You're, you're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think Billy was a good death? As in, like, so, um, Julian Richings, his, his, I preferred his version of death over, and I've completely forgotten what her name is, but Billy being mm-hmm. death. What's your take on those two, like, the, the two different? I much preferred um, Julian Richings' death. I liked his death more because he wasn't antagonistic towards the boys. He was just death. It felt like he didn't need to be antagonistic towards them at all because they were going to die one day anyway. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing they could do about it. Whereas Billy was... She had her moments. I don't dislike her at all. I think... No. I do enjoy her depiction of death. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was more, especially in 1518, she was more like the horror genre version of death. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm wondering if it's, so we, we don't know much about whether um, Julian's death was like the original death, because before that, there was no like concept of killing death, right? Mm. Until they, till they did it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so if we, if we said that he was the original death, it kind of makes sense why Billy would have more of a more of a bone to pick, excuse the pun, mm. with the boys because she was a, a reaper first before she became mm. death. So she probably had more interactions with like humanity than death did. And th- again, this is pure speculation. So, but it's just you know thought, food for thought. I, I feel like Julian Richards' death was very like the Terry Pratchett death as well, like his humor also uh, yeah. in the show it was very that whereas yeah you're right billy's kind of more an antagonist and um i i do think she was great i kind of wish it hadn't been her in 1518 i don't know what else it could have been i kind of wish it wasn't billy turning on them and had stayed kind of a bit more neutral but i guess it wouldn't have worked out i don't know but <laughs> yeah I, I i agree with i agree with it too just an off-the-cuff question. Would you accept a Winchester hug? The, like, super strong, like, I love you so much, but I'm not going to tell you because we're men, but not really. <laughs> kind of. Like, every time every time Sam, uh, sorry, every time Dean hugs Cass, basically, is what a Winchester hug is, in my mind. Why are you bringing pain into this for, for <laughs> Because Annabelle, why? Why are you doing this? This is why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, so those are those are the only hugs. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That. I, I just had a thought. Um, I think yesterday I watched. Um, I think it was eight oh six. It was I think Garth's second or third appearance, yes. and Dean was very uncomfortable with Garth hugging him again. And the um, yeah. it reminded me of the fact that I've known women who really don't like people hugging them or touching them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are just people that 
don't like to be touched or hugged <laughs> unless it's someone they know well and are comfortable yeah. with. That's a yeah. That's totally true. I mean, it's hard for me because I'm a hugger. Like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I am not. I'll barely give you a handshake. <laughs> don't this this whole like social distancing thing was just a blessing. Okay, so the reason we have Michael here is I think he has a really unique perspective on this show. I mean, all of the media that I kind of consume relating to fan works of this show are generally very sort of female orientated, made by mostly women. Let's be fair here. So it's nice to actually hear like a male perspective on the show. And and that's why um, I was really interested when Michael reached out to us. And uh, I think he has a very sort of unique take as well on how... Dean relates to uh, the fan experience. So, um, yeah, I'll um, let Michael introduce his first topic and we'll chat around it and we'll, we'll see where the conversation goes from there. Right. Um, I'm just trying to think how, what would be the best order for these. I think um, the one that's most relevant for now would be uh, Dean dealing with his grief in a masculine mm-hmm. way. Because... Um, we're up to 209 at the moment. Yeah. And um, we've had eight episodes of Dean grieving uh, different ways. And most of the commentary and discussions that I've seen about Dean have been from a certain viewpoint that his um, personality is almost entirely performative. Mm. But I, I've had to learn a lot about men's behaviour, psychology, and the concept of masculinity as an adult. And having learned how men generally tend to think and behave, I um, can't agree that most of his behaviour is entirely or even mostly performative. So uh, the thing that first comes to mind is episode 202, uh, Everyone Loves a Clown. This is the first episode after John died, and in this one Dean and Sam are both newly bereaved and processing their grief in very different ways. Sam is more obvious and more easily relatable uh, because he cries, he's trying to do what he believes John would have wanted. Mm. Whereas Dean is very reticent, he's very quiet. He is a completely different beast than Sam is. He doesn't talk about his emotions, he insists that he's okay, and he gets angry at Sam for constantly demanding that he grieve in a certain way so Mm. that it's easy for Sam to understand. I think this is just one instance of Dean refusing to open up to others. And I read and hear quite a lot about people saying he's repressed, that he doesn't know how to process what he's feeling, mm-hmm. and that it's all part of his stoic manly man act. <laughs> I think there's there's definitely something to be said for him not knowing how to process everything, mm-hmm. because the environment he was raised in wasn't, what's the word? conducive to understanding yourself to understanding negative feelings and processing mm-hmm. them yeah but um what bothered me in this and this episode and in lots of the discussions around it is not least the fact sam trying to police dean's grieving process mm. but there's also the fact that dean is incredibly untrusting of others and this almost never seems to come up dean definitely loves sam and his entire identity has been formed around protecting him and keeping him safe. Yeah. I think it's episode 220, 
what is and what should never be makes it very clear that um, Dean doesn't trust Sam completely mm. and that he knows Sam doesn't truly want to be around him. So um, that's that makes it harder for Dean to talk mm. because um, generally it takes a lot for a man to want to open up and talk about his feelings and experiences. Mm. I think men generally need to trust that the person they're talking to can be relied on, that they can express all of their anger and hurt and upset and the other person will be okay with it. Do you think Dean ever will ever trust Sam completely? Because I'm I'm guessing he's I would say that Dean hasn't trust Sam since the beginning of this mm. whole mm. series. Only because there was little hints of it in season one where like he would sort of be a little bit I wouldn't I wouldn't say snarky but kind of snarky towards Sam about like the fact that he left mm. and that that can destroy people's trust if you just mm-hmm. if you up and leave without any sort of yeah it can it can destroy the trust that you've built over years we're gonna have an argument but you're not gonna trust me with like your actual like I don't know do you get what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of like where I was at with it. Though. I think I do. Yes. <laughs> I I agree. So this is kind of a like not trusting people. It's it's generally not trusting people to stick around, and you see that from season one that Dean doesn't trust Sam to to stay with him and and you know exist in the same space as him. He's he's always expecting him to go back and do something else. And I think when we get to season two. And Sam kind of makes that shift as like he is kind of looking into the hunter lifestyle as being a permanent thing. Dean definitely doesn't trust that. I think he always thinks that he's going to leave at some point. And these same issues go into Dean and Cass's kind of relationship as well. He never trusts Cass to stay. And that's why he never asks him to either. Yeah, what you said just pings that in my brain. I was like, yes, this is definitely true. I think that it is all about... I don't want to say abandonment issues because it's kind of too heavy, but do you know what I mean? Like, is mm. that not trusting people to stick around? And why would you tra- Why would you trust your feelings to people that you think are going to leave you? I think it was um, Annabelle asked whether I think Dean would ever trust Sam. Mm. Um, I think he will trust him up to a certain point, but I think Sam has betrayed and deceived him too many times over the years for them to ever have a kind of easy open relationship with each other mm-hmm. um, there are things I don't think Dean will ever feel comfortable talking to Sam about I think so too there's also there's also can be too much trust in a little in, in a way because they are siblings they're mm-hmm. not so like I trust my sibling I trust my brother wholeheartedly but I'm still not going to trust him with everything mm-hmm. and I think that's sort of part of the relationship of being siblings is that you don't necessarily have to divulge everything to your sibling um, the problem with Dean though is that he doesn't have anybody to ever divulge everything with <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is it like oh yeah I could trust my brother with my life but uh, I don't need to talk to him about all this deep stuff. Like, he doesn't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't listen to me talk about Supernatural for four hours, you know? So, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is a different kind of relationship, totally. Hmm. 
I think another problem with Dean is that he just doesn't believe anybody could possibly care about uh, the things that he really wants to say to them. Mm-hmm. Because the environment he was raised in um, made him believe that the only worth he has is in what he can do for other people. Why I hate John so much, because... <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, I have a question about, like, if we're talking about, like, sort of displays of grief in the show, particularly relating to Dean, how do you think... Again, I'm not sticking to season two, I'm really bad. How do you think this kind of... I guess people, like you say, people call it repression in, in season two, relates to say season 12 like all along the watchtower where it's a very sort of almost public display of of grief i say public in the fact that sam and jack were there (laughs) is that the the final episode i if you're not sure on it you don't have to answer i can just cut it out (laughs) I'm, i'm not entirely sure but i think at that point it was that was around the time of the market research Mm. which suggests that the actors and the writers were possibly playing into the um, Dean and Cass almost being together. Mm -hmm. I think then it was... I think then the situation was quite a bit different than what happened with John. You sort of sprung that on very very episode specific. I'm really sorry. (laughs) I have very specific references and then to the whole gaps of time that I don't remember. That's part of a whole different discussion on um dean a decade later and his mm. relationship with castiel but i <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i didn't get, didn't want to get too much into it definitely when we get further up that <clears throat> up that way we'll have to have you come back on to sort of give your thoughts and feelings about because yeah. i'm sure you have thoughts and feelings <laughs> everybody has yes. thoughts and feelings about dean and Cass. <laughs> <laughs> i have all of the thoughts and feelings <laughs> <laughs> I miss like I miss his stupid face on the show. Like um, I can't yeah. wait till we get to season four. Anyway, <laughs> something for future Michael to discuss. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. I I agree with your take. I think it's really interesting how these kind of fan discussions do become almost like canon at some point because it's almost like an echo chamber of opinions. And it's not necessarily always a bad thing, but I do think that sometimes um, it can be almost mm, a little bit combative when people maybe don't agree as well with some of the canonical opinions almost of people. And, you know, like one of the reasons that I wanted to start getting people like you on to do some interview kind of style um, episodes was to get some of those different takes because I do feel like I very much ascribe to the, the... canon way of thinking if that makes sense a lot of the time i may have some opinions that differ um but t- i tend to generally agree so i but i think that it's really important and really interesting to hear like other sides as well because this show is so weirdly complex I-, I couldn't talk about anything else for this long i think we said that in um the usual suspects like two or something. i couldn't mm-hmm. talk about any other show like this i have a, a lot more notes here about Dean's grief. Mm-hmm. I just, um, I think um, the, what you were just saying about the fan canon or fanon, I think something gets lost in translation when it's mostly young women trying to analyse the behaviour of men that are 30, year old, 30 years old and older. <laughs> yeah. 
So I, what I was just discussing was Dean really needing to trust someone before mm-hmm. he can talk. I think that's a trait that men, generally speaking, have. I mean, it's not exclusive to men at all. There are definitely women like that as well. I think it's it's a shame that um, people in the uh, fan community aren't more open to perspectives uh, that are that don't agree with the already established fanon. So I am keeping with episode two hundred two for a little while. Something that I've found with men in general is that men tend to be very solution-orientated, and they tend to like identifying a problem and finding a solution to it. Mm-hmm. So I think men tend to feel that unless talking about feelings is going to lead to a solution to the problem, it's pointless. So in Everybody Loves a Clown, for example, Dean doesn't believe that talking about what John told him to Sam is going to help him find a solution in any way. Yeah. So talking about the stress and anger is pointless mm-hmm. to him. I think in Dean's mind, there's no need to discuss his grief at John's death, even though both of them lost the same dad and they only have each other left. And I think relating to this same thing is um, people tend to latch on to Dean's insistence here that he's okay. I mean, he's clearly not fine at all, but um, feeling in control of yourself and feeling stronger than your surroundings is important. So when Dean says he's okay, what I can hear him saying is he's coping, Mm. which is a lot different than saying I'm absolutely fine. And episodes uh, 203 and 204 show us his anger and despair, Mm -hmm. but he's doing his hardest to stop himself falling apart uh, because that's the only thing that makes him feel strong enough to carry on. One of the other things that helps him carry on is fixing the car. In 202, we see that he's got the car which is not completely fixed mm-hmm. but it's definitely in an advanced state of repair which implies that he spent a lot of time there fixing the car um, one thing that really really tends to help men in difficult situations is giving them a task to work on that makes them feel useful and productive it appears to help them a lot more than talking mm-hmm. I think that maybe if Sam had joined in fixing the car rather than insisting Dean talk to him Mm. Dean might eventually have opened up a little bit to Sam if he'd been working beside him on fixing the car together for Mm -hmm. a few days or he might not have opened up but I think the fixing the car and fixing it with someone Mm -hmm. would have done a lot more for him than just talking about his feelings I mean this is a this is a common sort of almost like therapy technique actually Uh, it's quite surprising because often doing a task will help people to talk about things I feel like um (laughs) getting personal here but one of the things I do when I'm feeling fairly anxious and uh, my partner knows this is he'll sit me down and make me do a jigsaw puzzle sounds like a small thing but it's very (laughs) calming like again like solution orientated you're going towards a task and sitting down and doing something like that can be really useful in those situations Definitely. You were, you were saying that one thing that pinged in my mind was, you know, it's not helpful or useful to tell Sam about what John said. But it's interesting because at the end of Korotoan, he's about to tell him. Mm. So, like, what do you think had changed? Uh, like, the rest of season two, my mind is, like, 
a sieve, so I don't really remember what happened after this point. <laughs> so what do you think changed in that episode to cause Dean to think, okay, I can tell him? I think that what had changed is that Dean had realised how much he was struggling to keep going. Um, mm. his When he was saying to Sam that he's that he's tired, and I think he said something like, who says I want to keep going? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think Dean knows there that he is he has two choices, keep doing what he's doing and probably end up killing himself. Mm-hmm. Um or he tells Sam and perhaps um find a solution that way. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's like yeah, you're right from what you're saying before it's kind of now become a point that you know, this is actually the answer to the problem rather than before keeping Sam away from it was more the answer, if that makes sense. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would think the answer to that question might be. Mm-hmm. That it was, yeah. Dean felt it was time mm-hmm. um, because if he didn't do it, things were going to get really bad. Yeah. What if you um, also took the, like, because we know what happens with the whole like demon blood thing, right? <laughs> yep. And this whole episode was about demon blood and infectious disease, whatever. But not really, but kind of. Because he, he says something along the lines of like, Dad told me something about you, right? That mm. was the sort of the line. So I'm wondering if, that, if that's also part of the like, originally, like, I guess when... John told him first of all it was like an sort of almost like an abstract thing mm. whereas now he's seen it in in practicality that like Sam wasn't affected by this infection so I should make him aware of this thing I know that doesn't really make a lot of sense of what I'm trying to say because <laughs> again my brain is like what what does he actually tell him why can't I remember but I don't remember, so it doesn't really help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know on that one. It seems a weird time. But, like, so much stuff went down in Croatoan, and, like, they're having a big old conversation at the end of it, and I think that's kind of, like, the whole logical conclusion to that. I'm not going to go off on it too much, because I probably just did. But <laughs> talking about the episode I'm going to raise before this. But um, Yeah. Hmm. Or... Was it just a convenient plot device? <laughs> Are we the... <laughs> this is it. Can't separate the two, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Like, is this actually... Is this good writing? <laughs> or not? <laughs> I think with Supernatural, it's usually best to say that it's not good writing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the darn truth. Um, but... You try to make me do a spit take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And th- I think that's what makes the show like so good in that because it's so op- it's so open to interpretation by accident. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I-, I often say it's just accidentally good. I don't think there was any kind of intention for it to be good. I think it's just accidentally good. Um, which no one's been able to replicate since because you can't do it. You can't do it on accident. 
where did we get up to? It was, um, ah, yeah. Okay. That was, um, Dean fixing the car. Yeah. So that yeah. was, so I think if you know what you're looking for when watching Dean, it's very clear that he's grieving. Mm. Um, he is definitely having a very tough time. Um, but the fact that he's not wailing and beating his breast doesn't mean he's repressing or that he is incapable of processing his emotions. Generally speaking, he's dealing with things in a traditionally masculine way. That's that's a very different thing than keeping everything repressed and not showing what you're feeling mm. to try to keep up and act. He's He wants to feel strong enough to keep going. I think that's I think that's important to keep in mind. But if he were to open up, how would people react to it? Mm. Um, if we think of other times he's opened up to people, he's never had a good response from them. So um, I think it was episode five eighteen, uh, the point of no return, mm-hmm. when Dean was Dean had given up and he was going to say yes to Michael. That was, he was metaphorically suicidal there. And that was, the way the other characters responded to that was with anger and violence and Mm -hmm. shaming him. One of very few times that he dared to open up to them. Um, There's, there's Bobby's suck it up princess speech. From I think. Yeah. And things like that that show that even when Dean does um, when he is brave enough to open up, he does not get a positive reaction. Mm-hmm. So why should he open up to people and talk to them about his problems if that's how they're going to react to him? Mm. I think the situation is much more complicated and um, interesting than just saying Dean is trying to pretend to be manly. I think dragging masculinity into this is what people... It seems like people trying to be clever mm. to me when really a woman could act exactly like this in Dean's situation mm-hmm. um, because masculine behaviour is not unique to men yeah. at all. Like um, My younger sister usually deals with things by um, shutting down, not talking mm. about things, trying to find something to do. And that's perfectly valid. It would... I think it would be great if the kind of fan community were a bit more open to seeing things from that perspective. I have a thought on that because I, you know, I think as a, I think a lot of people identify with Dean's character and I wonder if this is Mm. part of it because I think actually Although, yeah, you're right. I think it's very traditionally masculine, and, and I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of women res- like kind of respond to that character as an ident like an identify with him because we don't see many female portrayals of that kind of emotion on TV, right? Women on TV tend to be very over emotional, um, mm, right. generally. 
which is as we know is not the case i am this you know i'm in a similar situation if there's a bad if there's a bad thing going on in my life i am avoiding that with 10 foot pole i do not speak of it like it is gone people don't hear from me for days like i i i ghost my whole family like they're gone and so <laughs> i mean and like you just you don't see you don't see that in modern media um of, of women reacting in that way and i do think that's part of the um, like fandom experience, you know, experience with this character particularly. I mean, also because there are generally not many women on the show. Full stop. So mm. if you're going to identify a character as kind of gone, <laughs> let's be real. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think that's kind of part of it because I would say, you know, Sam in some ways is is portraying the more sort of like feminine tropes here. He's very open with his emotions, like. You know, he, we've just watched Chloe Toe and is he has like quite an emotional scene, but like I do, I do think that that is possibly part of maybe why the fandom community has particularly attached to Dean, which I can't think of any other characters on TV that are quite as complex as well, though. You know, Buffy, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. When I was thinking about these um, first nine episodes of series two, I was strongly reminded of series six of Buffy. Mm -hmm. After she'd died and been brought back to life, and then yeah. spent most of series six suffering with um, depression, nihilism, mm -hmm. um, self-destructive behavior, maybe suicidal ideations. So I think her entire relationship with Spike was um, self-harm, essentially, mm. um, self-destruction. Reminded me quite a bit of um, Dean's quote unquote flirtation with Gordon. And, um, <laughs> right. Uh, in, in a non sexual, non romantic way. Um, yeah, it, it's like adoration almost. Yeah. yeah. Ah, the, the way I meant it was more, um, it was very, very destructive what Dean was doing with Gordon. It was very violent and aggressive. And I think. For Dean, there probably was an element of um, numbing himself mm. to what he might eventually have to do to Sam. Yeah. I, I, I always think back to that, that one scene after he's just killed the vampire and he's got like the blood on his face. I, that's going to haunt me for a <laughs> long time. Like, I can't believe I didn't remember that from the first time because that the look on his face yeah. was... I still cannot... I do not know what that was. Like it was like he was in a trance. It was, yeah. It was mm, mm, gives me shivers. Good on you, Jensen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think his acting is the main reason I've stuck with the show for so long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Misha can throw out all of those choices or choice, whatever you know he says. Like you can ask Jensen what his choice of action was there all he wants it was still a, he was he was so compelling he was so compelling in this in this series all your words <laughs> so okay horrible tangent again i'm sorry <laughs> but so we we know that jensen has has an eye for wanting to direct right you know he mm. brought his his directoral camera well, lens thing. thing i can't think of the name of it either yes I yeah know exactly what you mean. um with the different like focal lengths of mm -hmm. the the lens 
and that was back in season one like in that like behind the scenes so do you think he's like his acting was influenced by him being his own director of an episode mm. um, and there's an interview right at the beginning with Jensen where he's saying that he was I think he's been thinking about directing since the beginning of series two I think he um mm-hmm. and he says that when he was acting he was thinking about it what he would want to see as a director. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... Well, that's... I was right then. Um, where did we get to? I'm sorry, we went on a massive tangent. He's also the older brother. Mm. Now, so I'm a younger sibling. I only have an old, I only have one older brother. And, like, I, me, and, me and my brother have had conversations about this particular topic of, like, he felt like I could get away with anything because I was the younger sibling. But then I felt like he could get away with anything because he was the older sibling. Now, there isn't that kind of, there isn't that sort of family element in the show. But there is like, Sam gets more sympathy from like Bobby, mm-hmm. I feel, than Dean does. And is, is it because Dean is the older brother, so he has to suck it up? as it were, in quotation marks. Uh, as, un- like, as unfair as that is. So what one's older than the other, it doesn't really matter. Like, we're, they're still humans. <laughs> I mean, part of that is absolutely true. Like, as an older sibling, you automatically take on some kind of parental role with your younger siblings. Like, it just happens. And so you don't get away with being as emotional often. And I feel like you kind of because you, you do have to kind of fulfill that role for your younger sibling you can't kind of burden them in that way if that makes sense like you would expect them to come to you but it would not be the other way around i guess again like being as a parent necessarily you wouldn't you know talk to your children about everything that was going on in your life emotionally whereas you would kind of expect them to come to you and talk to you about it I do think there's an element of that in there. I mean, I know that's a very, like, fanon thing also. Particularly, they say, like, eldest daughter syndrome. I feel like it's more just eldest sibling because I think that's a universal (laughs) element to this. I think that happens with all older siblings, you know, particularly if you have kind of a larger age gap as well. But, yeah, you just... You have to be the responsible one. You You have to be what's the word like in control of the situation most of the time that's a nice little segue into your other topics that you sent us so i think i was really interested in your thoughts on dean as a general role like as a role model specifically um for men in the community as well i won't really claim to speak for anyone other than myself Mm -hmm. uh because i can't but i expect a lot of young men might have similar stories there will of course be ones um, that don't relate to this at all but I think there'll be a lot that do mm-hmm. um, so I will be talking in kind of generalities and making generalizations here but they are just generalities and generalizations because um, mm-hmm. people are individuals but um, it seems to me like gay and bisexual men often have a difficult relationship with masculinity it's an inherent part of men and gay and bisexual men tend to be very attracted uh, to men who embody masculine traits such as physical and mental strength, confidence, leadership, self-control. 
and things like that. They're things that we tend to admire and aspire to, as well as being attracted to. But on the other hand, masculinity can also be a very painful subject for gay and bi men, because it's something that's been denied to many of them. I said before that it's innate, or masculinity is innate to men, mm -hmm. but it's something that needs to be nurtured and cared for in groups with other men, such as sports groups, friendship groups, relationships with brothers, fathers, and uncles, etc. And for this to happen, the bonds need to be accepting, loving, and as safe as possible. Mm. But um, this can be a lot harder for gay and bi men growing up, where friendships with male classmates or male relations are usually marked by rejection, bullying, ostracization, and things like that. In situations like this, masculinity goes from being an inherent trait to be nurtured and celebrated to something associated with friends who became bullies or mm. the dads that stopped talking to them. It becomes something that we're excluded from because being gay or bi means you can't be masculine. Mm. The, um, the two are often forced into conflict. You can be attracted to men or you can be masculine. You have to mm. pick one. So, um, a lot of gay and bisexual men are left with a painful situation where we aspire to masculine ideals, but we aren't given the tools to do so. And we're left believing that it's not for us anyway. Mm. It's a party that we're not welcome at. And what I think makes this worse is that even though gay men are probably the most visible of the um, gay, lesbian, bisexual and trans crowd, mm -hmm. it's rarely good visibility. Uh, most of it plays into stereotypes of one kind or another. Yeah. And we're often yeah. just the butt of a joke, uh, pun intended. <laughs> um, we're in films and television shows a lot, mm -hmm. but often it's just to provide laughs or to be the bitchy sidekick to heterosexual women. Yeah. And if we get our own stories, they're either hedonistic and drug-fueled like queer as folk, mm -hmm. or they end in age-related deaths like It's a Sin or Philadelphia, mm -hmm. or it ends with being beaten to death like in Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. We've been kicked out of the masculinity party and are presented with alternatives which, uh, to me at least, are very rarely fulfilling. Stories tell us what's possible, and being masculine men is rarely one of the possibilities presented to gay and bi men. Mm -hmm. like, um, I'm aware that it's a very... Lots of people laugh at it, but I relate far more to the manly aesthetic of Brokeback Mountain than RuPaul, for example. Yeah. But um, the messages given to me as a teenager and as a young man is that um, I don't get to be considered a real man, so why even bother? Mm. You might have noticed that I have not said anything about the representation of bisexual men here. That's because there is none. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is where Dean Winchester comes in. Uh, <laughs> he's a working class man who loves food and physical pleasure. He loves classic rock. He loves metal. Um, he fills his dialogue with as many pop culture references as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. He's highly intelligent. He uses his physical strength and fighting skills to protect others. But he's also battling his own mental health problems and decades of trauma and abuse. Mm -hmm. He's not a joke. He makes jokes. He's funny. 
he's resourceful, he's socially inept, he's deeply troubled, but he's also intensely loving and loyal. And he's brought to life by an incredibly talented actor who used to be a cheerleader and is a magnificent singer. Um, <laughs> Dean is stunningly beautiful, effortlessly masculine, and fantastically bisexual. And um, getting to know him has been the parasocializing experience of a lifetime. Um, I mean, he, he is deeply flawed. He has loads of faults. But there's also a lot in his character to aspire to. So some of the things I've just listed and some of the things we've talked about today. I've read about women who've come to terms with their own bisexuality because of him. Mm -hmm. uh, but for men and for women as well, uh, he is a role model for masculine behaviour. It was, to say it was a surprising realisation that Dean is bisexual would be a bit of an understatement. He's... <laughs> He's a paragon of traditional American masculinity, yeah. but he's also yeah. one of us as well. Mm. He's a fictional, quote-unquote, real man, embodying admirable, sorry, admirable, aspirational masculine traits, and he's bisexual. And when I realised that, it flipped the script completely, and it was like getting an invitation to the masculinity party for um, gay and bi men who felt completely excluded and unwanted. Um, both masculinity and bisexuality exist inside Dean, and there's no conflict between them at all. Mm -hmm. Although it does take him quite a while to work that out. And um, having this shown tells the viewer that it can be the same for us too. And why this struck a chord with me in particular is that I can't remember many other representations of gay or bisexual men that uh, that are so closely associated with masculine iconography and traits mm -hmm. in a way that's not a parody, an exaggeration or a fetishization. Dean is kind of a naturally, effortlessly masculine man who is also bisexual. <laughs> and that bowled me over like nothing else. I mean this is this is it though. Like I think this is why it's so compelling and like particularly to people who are LGBT plus um, this show because I think if you do I don't want to say view it with this lens because I do feel like it's canon like <laughs> but I do understand that they wrote it in such a way that it unfortunately is a lens I can't think of any other representation like this either the only I would say from a, a female perspective. The only character that I can see that kind of comes close to me is Rosa Diaz in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's great bisexual representation, particularly for women, but that comes so much later than this. Like, I, what, what, I, what, I love, what I love about it, and like what makes it compelling to me, I think, is that often when we get these characters on TV shows, their identity is their whole personality, right? Like, that's all they yep. talk about, or, like, all that is talked about about them. Whereas, like, Dean's such a complex character by himself, he just happens to be bisexual. Like, how often do we see that? Because it's, it's he's not, it's not, to because it was accidental, <laughs> I think. It's not tokenism. And that's why it works. 
And I just mm. wish they'd leaned into it. See, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like they came within a hair's breadth of being excellent representation. I think it could yep. have been. Totally could have been. And then they pulled back at the last second and that's what hurt. <laughs> so I think what what you were going to say with like, you wish that they leaned into it. It's not necessarily leaning into it, but rather not coming out and denying it. Uh, like, yeah. outside of the show. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is what kind of... Because they're, they're trying to... They're trying to reach an order. Like, again, we... We don't know the Reddit audience. Like this is, we 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 off off of the podcast. We've talked about the Reddit audience. Mm-hmm. They're the one apparent again generalization, but they're the ones who seem to enjoy how it ended and just see it as a TV show. They don't see past any of these things. They would never have like hearing the fact that Dean is bi would be like they would be shocked one hundred percent. They'd be like, yep. no, he's not. He's always straight. Like, what are you talking about? You could tell that the like people who are in charge of the show that they were looking at it for the Reddit audience. They weren't yeah. looking at it for the people who go to the conventions, the people who reach out to the actors and say, "Hey, no, like your character changed my life." Type mm-hmm. you know conversations that yeah. they've had. So I think they the they did damage in telling the actors and whoever else like the writers and directors and all of that, that they shouldn't, they should be denying that there is con- uh, subtext. Yeah. Um, had they not done that, I think it it wouldn't be as painful as it is. And I do think those fan interactions are part of the reasons why the actors did personally, I think, come around to it eventually and I you know again it's not explicitly said I mean Misha pretty much confirms fine that it's it's that that 1518 was a romantic declaration but apart from that actually apart from even like Dean and Cass's relationship because actually that's not kind of even in doesn't need to be in this conversation to still say that Dean is a bisexual character I think it's it's those I do think it's those interactions with people and lots of you know they, the actors did many campaigns as well for for people especially relating around like mental health issues also and have had people talk to them about this stuff. I think they had a much better understanding of who their audience was than the writers, the producers, and anyone else who was working on that network. Just I'm going off on one. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I I think. Again, I'm saying I think a lot of uh, it, it's the whole, the community as a like the LGBT plus supernatural fan community have latched on to Dean because he's the only bisexual representation there is on TV or there was on TV that felt positive at that time because it's often you know most most bisexual characters are women. I don't know, actually, yeah, I think you're right. I can't think of a bisexual male character apart from Loki, which happened, what, like three weeks ago? And then they're already kind of pulling back on that. I've already seen an article that says they're not going to mention that again, basically. And I've, I kind of feel like that doesn't really count with Loki because he was talking to a female version of himself. Yeah. So again, it's not really... I don't know. It was, <laughs> it was a thing, but then it wasn't. Yeah, I, I understand that as well. But... And this is why, again, why people latch on to Dean as a as a character that they vibe with 
couldn't think of the word vibrant (laughs) (laughs) because what what bisexual representation you either have promiscuous women or flamboyant gay men men. yeah gay men yeah and it's the promiscuity that annoys me about the bisexual representation because it's so not true of the anyway (laughs) yeah I was um my three closest friends were all bisexual men and um Mm -hmm. One of those has been married to his wife for 14 years. The other one has been with his girlfriend for about nine years. Mm-hmm. They're not promiscuous. No. Um, I mean, they are in largely monogamous relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And they're still very, very bisexual. That They're with women, but they're still attracted to men. I think there's something about that that most people who aren't bisexual just don't seem to get. Yeah. They think that it's about behaviour rather than attraction. Yeah. Supernatural had a chance to do this in... I don't want to say 2005. Like, when when do we think they could have actually explicitly said that Dean was bisexual without getting massive backlash from the media? Can they? Could they even now actually? Probably, probably not. I wouldn't say anything before twenty ten. Mm-hmm. Just because the way that networks were, um, mm-hmm. you know, is is only sort of now being more accepted. But I have. I would fear that they would. They would change his character. Yeah. If they decided to announce that he was gay and uh, not gay, sorry, bi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they would, they would make him gay. That was that's where my brain was going. Why is it gay? Um, at least that's that's how I. Because they they couldn't have. They couldn't have a question mark. Basically, yeah. <laughs> they they couldn't have they couldn't have this am like, it's not ambiguity. Um, worse word I can't say it. No, but you're right. Other people see it as ambiguity, right? Mm. So. They couldn't. That's why they they can't have like bisexual characters in the show because you'll still see people who, even though a character has explicitly said they're bisexual, will still call them gay. So, yeah, I think you're right. His character would have fundamentally changed because the writers would have changed it if they had made it explicit. Hmm. Hmm. No. Bob West talked a little bit about um, about about this in one of his videos. That, um, if Dean and Cass had become official in series eight, mm-hmm. and the show finished in two thousand twenty, Jensen would have been playing a bisexual character for about seven years, mm-hmm. and that would be rather difficult for his career in the future. Yeah, because he'd be very easily typecast. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of the show, he did seem to be very um, open to it, mm-hmm. and in fact, he seemed to—he seemed to be one of the ones pushing for it, which is mm-hmm. probably why he hated the endings. One of the reasons <laughs> he hated the ending so much. <laughs> yep. But um, I think I don't know when could they have done it and not face loads of backlash. Maybe two thousand thirty something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was going to say, the, the only way I think 
that it could happen is if they were dropped from the CW mm-hmm. and they were picked up yeah. by by another network like that's not on TV so like a streaming network if it was HBO for sure or Netflix where they're also just hands off like mm-hmm. yeah you want to make this show alright as long as it makes money <laughs> do you have any hope for um, Chaos Machine Productions I do <laughs> and I, so do I, I. Yeah. I, yeah, my mind changed on this because when they first announced the John Mary prequel, I was like, "No, don't want it. Don't want to touch it with a ten foot barge pole." But then Jensen tweeted, retweeted that article talking mm. about like how it could be good, and some of the content in there was like, "This is exactly how I feel about this, actually." And I, the thing is, I trust Jensen with the show, and also I trust Daniel with the show also because I think she is a fan generally of it and I, I think she loves it as much as we do yeah I think people have to the, the kind of people have to kind of get behind though what they're trying to do because it's hard to sell something maybe controversial to a network that's how networks work but if you can prove that you have a track record and that you're making something that people will watch then you're much more likely to be able to get things picked up that are maybe a bit more out there so I feel like the John Mary prequel is quite a safe bet. Yeah. Um, and they've also kind of said this is one of many projects that we want to do. So mm. maybe. I mean, the fact that he wanted to call it Free Will Entertainment. I mean, Jensen, come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> I've, I'm definitely a believer in the um, Jackal's long con theory. <laughs> yeah. I, I've come over to that way of thinking. Yeah. I think that it might have been a little bit different if Dean had been gay right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think that might have been a bit more acceptable for people, even in 2005. Yeah. But I think it's the fact that he was presented as a very traditional, masculine, air quotes, heterosexual man. Mm-hmm. Um, that people really didn't want to stray from that. I, I talked before about Dean being a role model for gay and bi men, but there are lots of gay men that don't like bi men. And lots yeah. of bisexual men that don't like gay men. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Gay and straight is easy, but people seem to have a blue screen of death when it comes to bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think Jensen has copped a lot of crap for his um, comments at conventions. Uh, so there was the the New Jersey convention in 2013 or something, mm-hmm. um, when the girl was going to talk about the bisexual subtext. There was yeah. the, um, I think it was JibCon in 2018 or 2019, mm-hmm. when um, there was the girl wearing the Destiel's real top, mm-hmm. uh, Misha called it out, and then Jensen's reaction to it was ambiguous. <laughs> it's he. When I was watching it, I, I thought, did he ever actually want this to become real? Mm. Uh, but I, I don't know whether his he does seem to get angry about it sometimes. Mm. I'm not entirely sure whether that's because most of the stuff that he, Misha, and Jared have been exposed to is um, slash fic and smutty 
porn and stuff, and he thinks that's all yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. because, or because he doesn't believe that the network will ever allow that to happen, and he doesn't want people to get their hopes up. I think it's a mixture of the two, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it could be, and it's also it's also um, certain fans don't understand boundaries either. Yes. So those who really push those slash fics and stuff are, you know, they may be sending it to them. It might always be in their face. So of course, like, it's it gets to a point where it, to them it may even feel ridiculous. Even though they mm-hmm. might believe it, it may feel like it's, it's too much. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I was talking about this when we were, did our little uh, rant on the prequel. I think Twitter is very prevalent in how people perceive fandom at the moment and I think it's quite a toxic place and I think people feel like they can say whatever they want on that platform with kind of no repercussions and I think I I kind of I I think maybe part of this is um, I don't know like I say the parasocializing people maybe with a lack of boundaries but you've there must be a very skewed perspective of what the uh, the actors themselves think the fandom is like compared to the mm. actual representation of fandom. Because actually, I think fairly, we're fairly moderate. <laughs> 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 Take the show fairly seriously, and also like just some of the stuff. Just just keep it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I think it's. I mean, I've been in I've been in fandom for a very long time, and I would say this was also. Hmm. Do I want to get into this? Yeah, totally good. So this <laughs> this is also very much seen was seen in the in the Star Trek fandom in the very early days, right? Let's think like Kirk and Spock. But the problem is, it's it's different now to how it was then. Back when I did conventions in the sixties. The actors got to know the fans who were running them because they were small. They were like 20, 30 people. Now you're talking about conventions that have like thousands of people and it's kind of a constant stream of like what, you know, these views that are coming at people. And I think just people need to be a bit more aware of what they're putting out into the universe. I'm rambling. It makes sense though. And also, ship wars have always been a thing in fandom they always stayed online and now because actors and writers and production people are kind of easily accessible you can just tweet somebody or like comment on their instagram post you don't have to like write a letter and mail it to them right so people had to like put in the effort that way back when if they wanted to get their opinion seen by someone who actually works on the show whereas now it's very easy to do so so yeah i just feel like something should stay online but also online, just in fandom spaces. You can't just say keep it online. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think the um the situation with Supernatural is a little bit different because they've they've actively broken the fourth wall over yeah. and over again, and they've invited the fandom into the show. Mm. There was uh, they first did that when Chuck was first introduced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then even then mm-hmm. there was the um. Sam and Dean found the Wincest fic on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was Becky Rosen. And then there was 
the fan fiction episode. Mm-hmm. Where does the show end and the fandom begin? I mean, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it. I mean, I could talk about fandom all day because, like, it's. I just. I find it endlessly fascinating. What about the difference between like fandom and then fan service? Because some of those episodes are like the fanfic episode mm-hmm. was a little bit of fan service. Absolutely. And I know, like, I know fan fiction is crazy. And I do think it's a good episode. I want a musical episode anyway. And again, fan service. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think what was really interesting about that particular episode is what was cut from it. That deleted scene um, talking about the essence of Supernatural, about it being about a found family that was cut. If that isn't a comment on the show as a whole, like, I don't know what is. Like, and that's what I mean, this breaking the fourth wall, a deleted scene can actually mean way more than, than you, you, you actually get from it. I mm. think Becky Rosen was bad choice in the beginning yeah in the beginning and when she was first introduced and this could be a whole episode by itself about how becky rosen is a complex character because i don't think they understood their audience at all when they introduced her because how i have like that personal stereotype of like crazy fangirl has been applied to me personally (laughs) so many times and it's hurtful and like I can't believe they wrote a character like that. Like, I, I can't, I can't believe someone sat down and well, said this is a great idea to like ostracize our female audience in this way. But it's funny that she went for Sam, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Yes. What? I mean, again, there there are people who are a fan of Sam, but I feel like the majority of women are a fan of Dean. Mm-hmm. So it made it would have made like being almost like a caricature of a female fan choosing Sam instead of Dean. They don't understand their audience. They don't understand their audience. Yeah. Also, no. was Becky Rosen just Eric Kripke? Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, we've been on a long old tangent, but let's get back into it. I want to um, hear the rest of what Michael has to say, so I'm sure you have other topics that you would like to discuss with us. Yep. I think the last one that I'd like to talk about is what some people refer to as performative masculinity. And they try to pin this on Dean, and I think that that's reductionist. And I think it ignores a lot of his character, because a lot of his character is about living up to other people's expectations and having to perform to keep them happy. I think before we talked about Dean feeling he has no worth of his own, Mm. he's only worth what he can do for other people. I see a lot of discussions of Dean on the internet and a popular through line is that his behaviour is 90% of performance to maintain a masculine image so that he can uphold the image he has of himself as a manly man. But analysing his behaviour like that is to effectively see him as a child and it erases all the other aspects of his personality and his past. I think one thing that often comes up is his apparent derision of geeks and nerdy interests. (laughs) 
while he actually enjoys these things himself. Mm-hmm. He loves LARPing. He loves bad 1980s horror films. He loves <laughs> cowboy films and Western lore. Mm-hmm. And yet, when other people express interests like this, he often gives them a snide comment um, or ribs them a little bit for it. And I think the reason he does this is kind of related to the fact that a lot of people tend to either exaggerate or downplay certain aspects of themselves Mm -hmm. when they're around certain people or in certain situations. I don't think there's any person who can be their 100% genuine self around everyone in all situations. So I don't. There are things that I kind of downplay around certain people or maybe exaggerate around others. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's how I fit best with that person or that group or that situation. Mm-hmm. And claiming that this has something to do with Dean's performative masculinity, it's kind of ignoring the fact that this is not unique to men at all. It's mm-hmm. something that women and girls do as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, um, it's human behavior. It's how to be social. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it is, to. definitely. And I, there is something in the fact that Dean does perform a little bit Mm -hmm. but I think for him the drive to perform certain things is most probably a result of him essentially being an army brat Mm. Uh, he was raised to do what his dad told him when his dad told him and to be the kind of son that his dad needed Yeah. Um, there was no room in Dean's life for being his genuine self because he was burdened with the responsibility of raising Sam and being uh, daddy's blunt weapon. Mm. Oh, um, that line. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I mean, John formed Dean's identity for him, mm-hmm. and it was yeah. based entirely around Sam and keeping Sam safe. Yeah. And um, completely, uh, what's the word? Rejecting Dean's own needs and wants, and taking on other people's um, expectations, yeah. no matter how unrealistic they were. I think uh, I think people tend to latch onto his um, being dismissive and derisive of things that he sees as nerdy because the thinking goes, Dean is trying to present an image of himself as a traditional American masculine manly man mm. who is passionate about sports, women and beer. <laughs> um, but I don't think we need to bring masculinity into this much at all. I think we've explained why Dean acts like this without mentioning his masculinity. It's Mm. because of the situation he was brought up in. Um, He wants John to be proud of him because that's the only way Dean believes he'll have any value to John. Mm. Uh, A son who likes cartoons, laughing, comic books and bad 1980s horror films is not a son that's valuable to John. He tries his hardest to live up to expectations because that's what he thinks will make him valuable to other people. Mm. And I think that a woman in Dean's position might end up shunning dresses, makeup, and long hair because they're useless in fighting demons. I I have thought I have thoughts on this if you don't mind me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, go nuts. So yeah, talking about, I guess, like, 
what we're saying, performative masculinity, it, you're right, it kind of doesn't play into this. It's more about expectations as a as a, a son and a, a, a tool, essentially. Um, I would... I, w- I always thought, because I've seen a few people like play with the idea of like, okay, yes, yeah, so right, what if what if Dean was was a woman? And I see, I I I often think that it would have been quite different because people look like I think as you you say, I think yes, this, the maybe the short hair probably would still wear loads of plaid and like <laughs> generally things that are quite useful, but I I. Do you feel like there is a gender like that that Dean does try and he does sort of fall into traditional gender roles and I think that if he had been a woman he would have fallen into the traditional female gender roles and so I think maybe it would have been like very almost very and I'm gonna say it performative femininity in a way you know long hair makeup heeled boots because why i think like do you know what i mean i think it's almost hmm. Hmm. I see I, I, yeah because i think john would have pushed him that or her that way <laughs> um, um can we perhaps look at mary in um when she came back as perhaps what dean might have been yeah. um if he were a woman rather than a man i think mm. mary definitely does fulfill some traditional female roles uh, uh, behavioural roles. For example, her clothing is kind of utilitarian mostly. Mm-hmm. Her hair is, I think, a bit shorter than shoulder length. Yeah. Um, she's definitely feminine, but it's not exaggerated. What What I was going to say is, if if we kept the same upbringing, I I personally think that. If Dean was a woman in the beginning, while De- while John was still alive, she would be very much how we see Dean. Mm-hmm. But from season two onwards, we might see a change. Because, like, <clears throat> female soldiers mm-hmm. generally have the shorter hair. I mean, they can also, you know, throw it down and, like, look amazing too <laughs> but in terms of comp like in terms of just being in the military you have mm-hmm. to have like a certain look which is what dean has he yeah. has the short and tight hairstyle and all that kind of stuff and he does and again that does kind of change in some season it does get a little bit longer but then it gets cut off and all that kind of stuff but <laughs> so i do feel like because we see we start to see dean get his freedom after like confronting john at the end of season one and then John, mm. with John's death he starts to form his personality again yeah so instead of showing like they, they don't they decide not to show it through clothing and hairstyles in the show but maybe if it was a woman they that's how done. they would show like the evolution of her character like and this that. is completely theor- theoretical <laughs> and doesn't really mean anything, but it's just kind of fun to think about. It's fun to think about, <laughs> exactly. I was also thinking about um, as the show goes on, and as the show does go on, Dean does relax a bit, mm-hmm. and he grows more comfortable in who he is. He allows the mask that John made him wear to slip, yeah, and he lets some people see more of the real Dean, 
around the right people, he lets the other part of him, um, the other part of himself, come to the fore. So. Charlie can be a bit of a divisive character among the fandom, but Dean never once had to pretend around her. Yeah. Garth isn't my favourite. I, I don't dislike him, but um, he shows Dean a very different way of being that mm-hmm. marries an awkward, socially inept character who also manages to find a happy, loving ending while still yeah. being a hunter. And he helps Dean on his road to self-acceptance. So um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of our discussion, I said that my favourite Dean moment was his um, the dancing scene in 1510. Yeah. That scene began with um, Garth showing him the moves. <laughs> and, yeah. when Dean was com- and when Dean was comfortable, Garth disappeared mm-hmm. and let Dean take over. Donna and Jody kind of value Dean almost as an adopted son. Yeah. And Claire learns to value him like a stepfather. Mm-hmm. He um, he shows parts of himself around them that, for example, Sam or Bobby never got to really see. Yeah. Um, and kind of at risk of making this scene incidental, Castiel knew him better than any of those people, yeah. and Castiel loved everything he saw. I think at first, Dean did conceal things around Castiel. Yeah. But as the the years went by, he let all that fall away. Mm-hmm. So um, when he's provided with the right environment, his act drops and he loses the mask. Um, I see his performance, and people are right to point out that Dean does perform, mm-hmm. but it's, I see it as a response to the negative people in his life, demanding that he do for them, rather than letting him be Dean. Yeah. He lets his... He lets the mask and the act slip around Bobby occasionally. So I think before I mentioned um, his suck it up princess speech at the end of series four, and then there was Dean being close to metaphorical suicide in 518. Mm -hmm. But rather than treating Dean with compassion, understanding and love, Sam, Bobby and even Castiel got angry and violent with him. Mm -hmm. So there's certain people that Whenever he lets the act slip, he's forced right back into the act of being a soldier and a weapon, even when he's metaphorically suicidal. I just think at the beginning of the show, Dean expects he's going to die within the next few years. I think that definitely plays into it. That being said, what would your... What would your perfect ending for Dean look like? Until I watched 1520, I, sorry, 1519 and 1520, I was completely convinced that the narrative was leading up to um, Dean being with Castiel. Yep. That was the only logical narrative conclusion uh, to the show. Um, mm-hmm. Dean finding a found family that loved him for who he is and valued him, having people that he could drop the act completely around, um, learning to accept himself, learning that he does deserve to be alive, he does deserve to find happiness, that he can suffer with mental health problems, but they don't have to defeat him. Mm -hmm. So my perfect ending for Dean would have been 
ending up with Castiel and spending a lot of time with Jodie, Donna, Charlie, Garth, all those other yeah. people that valued him rather than what he could do. Mm-hmm. See, I think that's what everybody wants. <laughs> yeah. like, doing this rewatch, there's so many conversations here where you're like, there was so much character development from this point to this point, and then they destroyed all of it. Mm. And I agree with you, that would have been my perfect ending. And whether or not that included hunting in the narratives of the show was almost irrelevant. I, though I would have liked to see them retire from hunting, because again, mm. nobody gets out alive from hunting. So to yeah. see someone do that really good story arc. Mm-hmm. Also to break some of that codependency that the two brothers have and see them kind of flourish on their own. Everyone got a bad ending, except for Rowena. Like, everybody got it one. Sam got played over too. Like, do you know what I mean? It was, but I think because it was, you were right, you're right. Season 15 was leading to a place and then it didn't pay off. Yeah. Anticlimactic is a complete understatement. Definitely. (laughs) I've, um, some people have said they liked it because um, sometimes bad things just happen. Mm. But we know that bad things just happen. It's not good storytelling. Um, yeah. yeah. Could, could you imagine if Frodo and, Frodo and Sam had been struck by a meteor <laughs> before they got to Mount Doom? And someone exactly. said, oh, stuff just happens. Yeah. Right. And like, I think Amy said this before, like not, not on the podcast, but like to have that kind of people just die in the middle of a pandemic where people are dying from something that they you know there's some people just there was no avoiding it and there were people that could have avoided it but it just it wasn't the right time to have an ending like that to have random death it was just they did not read the world at that point yeah (laughs) the thing is they had the time to do the rewrites and during a global pandemic, they had the time to do the rewrites. If this, and unfortunately, the more I do read into this and the more I'm watching the seasons now, I do think that this was intentional and that was it was always, they were always planning to kind of end it this way, which hurts deeply that they would think that that's a good ending. And then, but then they had that time, they had that breathing space to look at that and be like, is this actually a good ending in the current climate? with the people that we know are the fans, there was a, a kind of almost contempt for the show that they were showing. Um, and a lot of people read into that a bit more and be like, yes, it was intentional because the network wasn't letting us have the ending we wanted. We kind of almost wrote that. They almost wrote that contempt into the show. Like Dean getting mm. pied in the face is a good example of that. Yep. We'll, we'll know one day. I'm putting my tin hat on. It's on, it's firmly <laughs> attached. I, I do believe that hopefully these things will be answered at some point about the shenanigans that went on Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. because you're right go back everybody and watch season 15 again then tell me that was the ending that you expect (laughs) we needed a certain ending i think the ending that i would have loved for dean would be for him and castiel to be living in a tiny cabin on the outskirts of a tiny village somewhere in minnesota Mm -hmm. and um having Claire and Jack visit every other, every other Sunday for dinner while Sam is the new Bobby. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh. Absolutely. That's what it should have been. Yeah. 
they they really just try to they try to force this this conclusion none of it made sense Okay, with that rant about the finale, because we know that's the place we like to end, I just really want to thank Michael for being on the show. I think his ideas are really interesting, and if you like some more of his content, you can follow him on Tumblr. His URL is Destiel Shipping News. I will also tag it into the description as well. So go check his stuff out. So yeah, it's been a real pleasure. I... Um, I, I know this is outside of our normal format, but I would like to do more of these episodes. Um, if I do see something that's interesting online, I might give people a, a contact and see if, if anyone would like to come on and do these kinds of more interview um, style episodes. As like we said at the beginning, I think it's really nice to hear a different perspective on the show be, and then just me and Annabelle talking for two hours. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure... You- some of you might be bored by that. <laughs> Surely. Come on, guys. <laughs> Thanks for joining us uh, this time. As always, our header and our art is um, by the Pixel Agora on Tumblr. Please follow them and also commission them on Kofi because super talent. Like, just super talent. Just get them to draw feeling cats for you. <laughs> 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 just do it. Just do it. And, um,. Those designs should be on Redbubble now as well for you to buy and put on whatever you want. Face mask, flasks, um, whatever. And we, of course, are sharing the profits with the artists. So you can find us on Instagram, um, Escaping Purgatory Podcast. We're also on Tumblr. Uh, same, All of our usernames the same. Twitter. We're also on Ko-fi. Any money that gets donated is towards audio equipment. Just make us sound cleaner and nicer. Um, so give us a follow and definitely obviously Spotify doesn't allow reviews or anything like that but if you are either listening on Apple Podcasts definitely leave us a review we'd Mm -hmm. definitely like to see those Um, and if you're listening on YouTube just give us a thumbs up and subscribe the episodes come out a week later but so if if you want to be up to date follow us on Spotify or anywhere you get podcasts all right. So once again, thank you very much to our guest. Um, I've, thank you I've for very, <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I I hope that we can do something like this again in the future. And I've really enjoyed it. So for all you listening, thank you for attempting to escape purgatory with us. Until next time. Bye. 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 Bye.